If you would now, I want to encourage you to grab a Bible and join us. We'll be in Acts chapter 9. And so if you don't have a Bible, would you do me a favor and just raise your hand? Um, And if you'd like one, if you'd raise your hand, my friend uh, Mark will pass one out to you. So if you don't have a Bible, he's going to give you one. And and in addition to that, there are a couple things. If you don't own a Bible, like if you don't possess a Bible as your own, um, please keep that. Let that be our gift to you. Let that be... Um, just something we give you a, as a token of your appreciation, not, not so that you can let it collect dust uh, in your house, but instead so that you can uh, put it to use and, and, and maybe it will guide you. And so in addition to that, man, if you even know someone who doesn't own a Bible, let that be your gift, our gift to them and take one of those with you. We, we love God's word. We don't want to keep it uh, hidden. Instead, that we want it to be something that as a group of people we dive into and walk according to together. So we'll be doing that in Acts chapter 9. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. Um, we'll be in Acts chapter 9. And it, when you get there, I want you, if you can, to mark your spot with, the, with your finger and flip back a couple of pages to Acts chapter 1. And uh, I want you to see something before we dive in that will help us understand a little bit about what we're talking about today. And so in Acts chapter 1, in verse 8, something we've been really meditating on as a group of people and really thinking about and reflecting on as a group of people for the last several weeks, since uh, a couple weeks after Easter, in fact, is this statement that summarizes a lot of what's been going on in the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus' followers, that is, disciples, ask Jesus. They say, hey, will you tell us some secrets? Will you tell us about the future? When, when are you going to come back and establish your kingdom? And Jesus sees those people and says, it's none of your business. He says, it's not for you to know. You don't, you don't need to know the times and the places. Those things are set by God, and he's in control. But instead, it says in verse 8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, that is, God's Spirit will actually be present among us, and then you will be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, that's their hometown, then in Judea, that's kind of their close neighbors, relatives, people that that they like and know, Samaria, it says then, those are kind of the people that represents the the people that you don't like, so Samaria was was a country full of people for them that they didn't really like or didn't didn't want anything to do with, and then it says, if that's not enough, you're going to be my witnesses all the way to the ends of the earth. And up to this point, we've been walking through the, books of, the book of Acts seeing that this promise, this command of Jesus starts to happen. It really happens all the way as it crosses continents to this morning that you and I are here, a part of a movement that Jesus began with this small group of people. It crossed continents. Sometimes it, it, it crossed continents and crossed countries, and, and it came through uh, really interesting and sometimes shady ways. But here we are. This movement that was begun 2,000 years ago has even swept us up, and here we are as a fulfillment of Jesus' promise to them. God's Spirit is going to take over, and something that you can't even explain or take credit for will take place and move across the world, even to the ends of the earth. To the point that you and I actually celebrate today as we get together and we talk about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. We celebrate the truth of that promise. And so as they were sharing this good news in Jerusalem, an interesting thing took place. You see, my theory here is that I think Jesus is pretty lovable for almost anyone whenever Jesus is at a distance. And up to this point, that's been the case. So so these people came and they, they encouraged people and they had the power that Jesus gave them to heal people. And people got really excited about it. They loved it. And crowds followed these first followers of Jesus. And, and they heard this good news and 
what it is that Jesus had done for them, that they had set people free from their past and that he had given them a new life. And people loved it and they came in crowds and they wanted to be a part of that. And as long as that wasn't really bothering them and as long as the benefits seemed to be coming, people were getting healed, people seemed to be happy, nobody's lives were really in danger. And, and up to that point that, that the happiness seems to be traveling with the good news of Jesus, that most of the people seem to love it. But in the last few chapters, we've seen a turn. You see, the people in power, the religious elite, the religious people, the people who believe that they were in control of knowing who God is, they didn't like this challenge to their authority. They liked to be in charge. They didn't like the idea that Jesus was in charge. And so they responded first just with anger, and they grabbed some of the followers of Jesus, and they threw them in prison, and they said, shut your mouths, stop talking about Jesus. But for those of us who know how good Jesus is, man, this thing that Jesus has done is too good to keep a secret, right? And so immediately when they walked out of prison, they started telling more people, healing more people, and more people joined this movement. So the next thing they did in the response is they took those people and they threw them in jail, and then they beat them. And when they threatened them not to talk about Jesus anymore, they beat them. They gave them bruises and scars to remember it. But lo and behold, that wasn't enough, and they left. Doing the same thing that they were doing that got them thrown in jail. Until finally there was a guy by the name of Stephen, a follower of Jesus, a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, a wise man. And he spoke boldly about who Jesus was. And in response to them, as Jesus and the good news of who he was got closer and closer and began to impact and rip the authority out of their hands, their anger boiled over into rage and they killed him. They threw big boulders, stones and rocks onto this man Stephen until he died. They killed him. Because my theory is that as Jesus kind of come clo comes closer and the more we learn about who He is, we begin to realize that He is who He says He is, starts to make, it starts to make people uncomfortable. I, I think we see this even in, in, not only in the Scripture, but in life. I think as long as Jesus is telling people to like feed hungry people, as long as Jesus is telling people to build hospitals, Right? As long as Jesus is telling people to you know, help you know, clothe people who don't have clothes or give shelter to people who are homeless, as long as people are, are walking around doing what Jesus told them and they're doing those kinds of things, people like it. It seems to be a benefit in the society. In fact, the government agrees, and so the government gives big tax breaks for organizations that, that do that. You're going you're to help out the city? That's great. But then when Jesus starts to tell us things about marriage, Jesus starts to tell us things about money. Jesus talks about money a lot. Jesus starts to tell us things about anger and violence. It starts to make people uncomfortable. As long as Jesus is at a distance and seems to, to have a benefit for most people, I think most people like it, and it's okay. But, but once Jesus starts to stand up and make claims about who he is, claims about what that means for us who follow him and walk in his footsteps, I think you'd have to admit, people start to get uncomfortable. Let me give you an example. I, that I think is especially important for this story. You see, there's some interesting things going on 
around the world. And man, I, I wish I was better at kind of keeping, uh, keeping up with current events, but there's some turmoil, especially in a country of Iraq, a place full of all sorts of holy sites. Some of the sites we, we read about on, on a regular basis in the Bible. And, and there's kind of a group, a militant group coming over and they're taking over a large chunk of, of, of this country and, and they want to create a kingdom in, in the name of the religion of Islam. And so in efforts to kind of win people over, I would say that they're killing women and children, killing anybody who disagrees with them. Killing anyone who, who doesn't believe what they believe. Kind of like what happened to Stephen, right? And there's this organization, I would probably call it like, as most people are calling it, it's kind of a terrorist organization. In fact, there are other terrorist organizations in the world that are like condemning this one, saying that they're too, they're too crazy, right? Sometimes you'll see this, it's ISIS or ISIL, and it's an it's a group that, that's trying to establish an, Islam, an Islamic republic. And, and so we call them terrorists. Most of the world is seeing the violence that they're committing. And, and we call them terrorists. In fact, we'll call them enemies. And we start to think about what we should do to stop them. Let me give you an example. I don't want to make a political claim, but I want to make an observation that has political implications. We'll say you're right. Say there are enemies. Do you know what Jesus says we should do for those enemies? You see, as, as Jesus is far off, it's fun, right? Jesus is cool. But when he starts to make claims on our lives, it starts to get uncomfortable. You see, Jesus says that you should bless those who persecute you. And Jesus says you should pray for your enemies. I don't know about you, but when I hear about the evil of some people killing innocent women, children, families because they don't believe what they believe, and then I hear Jesus say, yeah, I know, you should pray for those people. You should genuinely pray for those people. That makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I'm much more likely to, to swing a sword, right? I'm, I'm much more likely to think of the ways in which we can exact justice and vengeance. And, and Jesus, he makes claims about justice and vengeance. And as Jesus comes closer, he makes some claims about who he is and who we are in light of him. And it begins to make us uncomfortable. In fact, there's one guy above all that we read about in the book of Acts that is probably the most uncomfortable because of who Jesus is and who Jesus' followers say that he is. And he's a guy by the name of Saul. And the best way to describe him would be to call him a terrorist. He was so angry by the claims made by the followers of Jesus that he began to haunt them. He began to threaten them. He began to chase them down. And while he wasn't making any strategic victories, he was trying to put people in prison so that he would scare off the rest of the other followers of Jesus. In fact, he was standing there and he helped the people who killed Stephen. I got no other word but to call him a terrorist. He's the worst of the worst because he's, he's not really making strategic moves, not making military moves. He's making terrorist moves. He's trying to make a public display of people that he disagrees with. And we hear this story about this guy. He's a terrorist. He's evil. He does things. He kills innocent people. He actively pursues people who believe differently than him in order to put them in prison, in order, them to, pun in order to punish them. And there's this story in chapter 9 that I want us to talk about today about this terrorist. 
story where I think Jesus comes quite near. So let's read together in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, and we've heard references of his name a couple of times up to this point, Saul still breathing threats and, get this, what's that next word? Murder. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he asked him for the letters to the synagogue, to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the way of the people following Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Get the picture here. This guy hates, hates the movement that this Jesus started. And now the followers of Jesus are walking around telling everyone that Jesus is not dead, that they actually saw Jesus alive. And this makes this guy Saul furious. And so we saw, right, that that Jesus made a command that that the gospel would spread first from Jerusalem to Judea, then Samaria. Well, well, kind of northeast of Samaria, probably closer to the ends of the earth, according to these people, is Syria, that is, and Damascus. And so as the disciples scattered because of the persecution against Stephen, as they scattered to share this good news of Jesus and be witnesses, what does Saul do after them? Did you catch that? Because he'd been in Jerusalem persecuting people, and then it says that he looked for permission from the authorities to chase these people down. And so picture this. Picture as, as the good news of Jesus spreads from right here, as it gets a little bit wider, it starts to go to different people. People hear the good news of Jesus, begin to be changed by it. As it goes further and further, the persecutors, that is Saul, are right at their heels, chasing them to Damascus. And so here we find Saul. He got permission to chase these people down. He got permission to run these people down. And he's on his way to find these people in Damascus. In verse 3, we see this. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5, Saul says, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now the men who were traveling with him, that is Saul, they stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight, completely blind, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I love this. This is like Quentin Tarantino stuff right here. It's a vision within a vision, right? I'm going to give you a vision. He gives this guy a vision of a man who's having a vision. This is awesome. So Ananias has 
this command to go meet with Saul, who is blind. In verse 13, we hear his response. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. I've heard how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he now has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he has sent me so that you now may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And then he regained his sight and he arose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately Saul, the terrorist, out to destroy every Christian he could find, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, in Damascus by, providing, or excuse me, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night, in order to kill Saul. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come back to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he truly was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord Jesus who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were seeking again, did you get this? To kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So get the picture of this story. There's a terrorist who wants to destroy and harm and imprison followers of Jesus. And on his way to chase down these people who seem to be scattering and running from him, he meets Jesus. And in this miraculous turn of events, light comes out of the sky, blinds him completely, and Jesus, the one that infuriated him the most, tells Saul, 
that he is now going to be working for him. And he sends them on, sends this guy Saul on to the place where he was going to persecute followers of Jesus. But instead of there to persecute followers of Jesus, he sends this Saul on to tell everyone else about how he had met Jesus on the road. That he really had encountered the Jesus who was alive. And then this Saul, as he meets these people, meets them in complete disbelief because they are pretty sure, you got to think they probably thought it was a plot. Like, oh yeah, he's faking like he's one of us until he lures us in, puts us in prison, and kills us. In fact, he goes back home to Jerusalem, tries to make the same case. And most of even the followers of Jesus don't believe this really has happened. But get this straight. Put this in terms that would look right for us. A terrorist, a person breathing murderous threats upon us, comes in and says, hey, by the way, I don't hate you anymore. Hey, can I join you? Can we be buddies? Hey, I know I killed your friend Stephen. I know I was a part of that whole thing, and I know I threw all your friends in prison. But yeah, can I hang out with you? Can we be friends? I agree with you now. How would we respond? And so there's just tons of layers. The first one we talked about is what, how Jesus jumped out of nowhere to, to confront this Saul. And then there's these things that Jesus gives Saul to do. He doesn't ask Saul's permission. Did you catch that? At no point did Saul go, I agree, Jesus. He just says, go, do it. And then there's all sorts of layers. of People like Ananias, we don't even... Hardly hear about this guy again, but God sends him, kind of like the guinea pig. Hey, by the way, can you go tell that terrorist that we're cool now? And then on top of that, he goes back, and then, then, then the disciples, the followers of Jesus, the people who should have known better, they, they should have known what it looks like for people who had at one point betrayed Jesus and, and tried to attack Jesus to all of a sudden turn around and want to follow Jesus. They should know better, but they, they also think that he's a liar. So let's go back to the beginning. You've got this Saul. He hates Jesus, but that's because Jesus became closer and closer and made him more and more uncomfortable. You see, this Saul we find out later is actually a high-ranking official. He, he has authority from the religious body. He's a big deal. He's a brilliant scholar. There's probably no more devout religious person than this guy right here. He's so devout that he's trying to punish anyone who disagrees with him. Right? We see this, this kind of religious fundamentalism. This is not foreign to us. This is happening on the news right now. You don't agree with me? Fine. I'll fight you. I hate you. I'll throw you in prison. Or worse. This is familiar to us. We've seen this before. In fact, we saw this up to this point. We, we kind of offered that there's different kinds of idolatry, and one of those idolatries that, that I think attacks Christians the most is just to be right all the time. And there's a big difference. It's a big difference between people who are devoted to being right about Jesus and people who are devoted to following Jesus. And it seems pretty clear, since Jesus didn't answer some of the questions that the disciples even had, that we're called to follow Jesus, not necessarily to be right all the time. And if you want another example, even more so than the ones we've seen, look at Saul. Nobody was more religious, more devout than Saul. And yet he had somehow, in his religiosity, completely missed this good news of Jesus. 
He missed out on this new way of living, this new way of forgiving, this new way of praying and blessing your enemies instead of pursuing them to destroy them. And then on the way, as he's walking along, this terrorist comes face to face with Jesus. Comes face to face with Jesus. And so I want to get just a few observations that I think will encourage us. As with the rest of the book of Acts, there are some things that you and I see that we can imitate. There are things that are going on in the book of Acts that we can do. You can do today. And Jesus commands us to do. But then there's the other kind of sets of things that He hasn't gifted every one of us with. So if God's given you the the ability to heal people, you need to go heal people. If you find yourself praying for people who are sick and they get healed, God's given you that blessing. Just like the people in this book, the apostles, these special elite group of people following Jesus. But for most of us, God hasn't given us that gift. Frankly, I think it's because we would use it for our own glory, our own fame. Um, I, would, I would sign a book deal as soon as I healed my first person, right? And so I, I don't think God has given me that gift because I think he knows what I would do with it. But if you've got that gift, do it. But you'll see there's some things that we see in the book of Acts, miraculous things that God continues to do among us, but there's some things that, that aren't that much the case. And so we want to focus on the things that, that we can imitate and we can replicate, and we, we want to be careful around the things that maybe we don't necessarily have the ability to replicate. So for example... Jesus shows up in miraculous fashion. Now, I've never heard anyone who saw a vision of Jesus like this, but I've never heard. I've heard some weird spiritual experiences that I've heard people say, but nothing like this. And so this, this seems to be a one-time deal. This only happens once in the New Testament. We never hear about this ever again. And Saul is a particularly special person. And Jesus confronts the enemy. And what does he do with this enemy of his? Maybe the better way to ask that is, what would you do? What would you do if you had your enemy on the ground in front of you, blinded? The person who was out to destroy you, wanted to kill you and your friends and your family. What would you do if you had them right before you? There's a quote that's powerful from Abraham Lincoln, and Abraham Lincoln was known for saying that if you want to destroy your enemy... Make him your friend. If you want to destroy your enemy, you make him your friend. And what does Jesus do but put his money where his mouth is and he takes his enemy right there before him and instead of destroying him, this would have been a really cool story about how Jesus showed up with a sword, boom. I mean, I, I get excited. That's a, that's a movie right there. And instead of doing that, he just says, you're working for me now. Get up. Go. Do what I tell you. And this terrorist, confronted with the presence of Jesus, has a complete and total change of heart. Can I share something with you? Even though as Jesus comes closer, we become more uncomfortable, when we see Jesus face to face for who He really is, everything changes everything changes. Nothing stays the same. Everything starts to look different. Things start to turn upside down. 
I mean, that's certainly the case for, for Saul, isn't it? He turns completely around and becomes a friend, uh, one of the greatest evangelists. Most of the books in this Bible after this particular chapter are written by him. And most of we, what, what we believe about who Jesus is and what the church ought to look like, we get from this guy. Because once you see Jesus face to face for who he really is, everything changes. And I think it starts with what he realized blind on that road. You see, most of us are probably afraid that if we really were face-to-face with God, that we'd be in a lot of trouble. I don't know about you, but the majority of people I even talk to, they're afraid of believing in God because they're afraid of what that would mean. They're like, well, I'm not perfect, and I'm sure God hates me. In fact, they're completely turned off by this picture of God that we all tend to have, is that God is this angry angry person in the sky just ready to smack the people he doesn't like. But is that true in this story? And when we come face to face with Jesus and realize that God is not out to harm us, but God is out to heal us, when we come face to face with Jesus and realize that God is not out to destroy us, but instead God is here to take that which is already broken and put it back together and make it whole again, Everything changes. Everything changes. Because what Jesus has done is bigger than anything that we have done. What Jesus has accomplished is greater than anything that we have accomplished. Good or bad. Whether what you think you've done is really great, I'm sorry. What Jesus has done is greater. You're not special. Jesus is. Stop trying to hog the glory. Jesus is the one who deserves it. You haven't turned the world upside down. We mark our years based on what Jesus has done, right? It's 2014. 2014 what? 2014 years since that thing that Jesus did. Nobody's marking their calendar by anything you've done. But everybody's measuring time based on what Jesus has done. And so if you think what you've done is great, I'm sorry, what Jesus has done is greater. He deserves the fame you're trying to hog for yourself. But on the other hand, maybe if you're more like me, you've done a lot of really stupid things. And if you had this all to do over again, you wouldn't do the same. Guess what? All those stupid decisions you made, all those things you've done, same goes for you. What Jesus has done is greater. All the things you've broken, all of the hurt that you and I have endured and caused, What Jesus has done to put us right is greater. It's bigger. And Saul saw this firsthand because if anyone deserved to be smacked down by God alone, if anyone deserved the vengeance of God, it's this guy. And yet Jesus simply humbles him, blinds him, and nothing is the same afterward. Nothing's the same. You see this amazing mercy of God. He doesn't wait until Saul has it all figured out. Instead, he pursues him, seeks him out, and changes his life. We talked about this last week, right? Who initiates this whole event? Who sends who here? Jesus initiates it. And so for those of you who maybe have some experience in church, um, here's a really cool thing over the last decade or two, we've, we've had what's called kind of a seeker movement, a seeker sensitive movement. And so for people who are seeking, maybe seeking answers, seeking God, seeking you name it, 
And we want to be sensitive to those people. We always want to be, like, for instance, I don't want to assume anything about what you already believe or why you do what you do. I don't know, right? But here's this really cool story. Who's the seeker here? And so as a group of people, we want to be more sensitive to Jesus, who is the ultimate seeker of people, than we are sensitive to those of us who are seeking answers. Because what was, Paul, what was this Saul who becomes Paul seeking, right? He was seeking to harm people. And Jesus was seeking to save people. And so we as a group of people are much more sensitive to the Jesus who doesn't sit quietly waiting for you and I to figure it all out. He doesn't wait until we get our life in order. He looks at our disorder, he looks at our destruction, and he says, yeah, I want that one. That's mine. That's my favorite. I like that one. It's this beautiful picture of a God who isn't sitting up here in heaven hoping that we get our act together. It's a God who sends his son, becomes present among us so that we would know we are loved, chosen, forgiven, adopted, even when our life is a mess. Friends, that's incredibly good news. And when you come face to face with that, everything changes. So what do we take away from this? What, what do we, I mean, is this the kind of thing that can happen? Uh, is this the kind of thing that can take place among us? Uh, I think I want to close with possibly the words of this Saul who became Paul as he was writing what we believe to be probably one of the last letters that he wrote to different churches. And one of the last things he said, one of the last things he shared with a group of people, he wrote to one of his friends, a kind of a person he was mentoring by the name of Timothy. And the first Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this Paul who encountered Jesus, this is what he tells. He wants to summarize what's happened. And I'm going to let him summarize what's happened here and let him close us out. He says this. He says, here's a trustworthy saying. Here's the truth that's worth believing. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom... I am the foremost. So that in me, Christ might display His perfect patience as an example for those who might believe in Him for eternal life. Toward the end of His life, as, Jesus was, excuse me, as, Saul was, as Paul was passing on His last words, His words about Jesus were this, that Jesus is here not to condemn people, but to save and redeem people, to take what is broken and set it right. And if you don't believe me, look at my life. I am the worst. Nobody was a more terrible, terrible terrorist. Nobody was a more evil. Nobody was more bloodthirsty than I. And Jesus, given the opportunity to exact vengeance on me, didn't come here to do that. Instead, he came to set me right. And give me peace with God. I don't know what you've endured. I don't know what has brought you to this place. I mean, I don't know the, the scars that you have. I don't know the things that you've done to other people, the things that other people have done to you. But our human nature has an interesting way of letting those things define us. Our own human nature has an interesting way of letting those things kind of write our history. 
So when we experience a great failure, we tend to repeat it. When we do something wrong, we tend to repeat it. What if I told you that Jesus can change everything? What if I told you that Jesus can change everything? This guy, al-Baghdadi, he's running around Iraq killing people because they don't agree with him. It's crazy. It's crazy, I know it. What if I told you Jesus could change him? Would you be like Ananias and be like, hey, I don't know about that. Because the good news of Jesus is that if he can take a terrorist like this Saul and make his life right again and change the world by him, then, oh man, my friend, imagine what he could do with you and me. If he can heal what was broken in this murderer, man, imagine what kind of life he could give to you and to me. You find it hard to believe? So do I. There's some people I know I, I don't think they'll ever change. But I want to encourage you with this good news. This Jesus can run further, faster than anyone else. And while maybe one day you and I might not see light to turn us around, or those people we love around us may not see a light and Jesus face to face, I promise you, I promise you, if they will come face to face with who Jesus is, their whole lives will be changed. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for how good you are. Uh, we thank you so much that you can show mercy to a guy like this who is on the road to, to destroy people. God, we are overwhelmed by this good news that people who are running against you, people who are rebelling against God, you mean to turn not by wrath or vengeance, but you mean to turn by showing your grace. God, we thank you uh, that you are so rich in mercy, uh, that you could look at this, this murderer and turn his life around and, and create a new life that gives life to more people. So much so that his last words were simply, hey, believe in this Jesus, because I promise you, if he can save the worst of sinners and the worst of rebels like me, then I promise you, he can, he can set your life right. God, let that good news resonate in us. Uh, let that good news uh, change our hearts. May we come face to face with this Jesus and not be filled with our own confidence in ourselves, but instead, might we come face to face with this Jesus and be filled with confidence in Him. Might we come face to face with this Jesus and realize that you are not a God who is distant, you are not a God who is angry and wrathful towards those of us, but but instead, because of Jesus, you are a God that wants to show us mercy. You are a God that wants to put things back together. So God, we confess that there, man, our, our relationships, our families, man, our marriages, our friendships, there's, there's, there's brokenness there. There's, there's, as we look around us, there's so many things that just aren't right. And we're becoming, we're getting to where we believe those things are never going to change. 
We're getting to where we, we don't think those things will ever be different. We're, we're starting to get ready. We're, we're, getting to, we're starting to just brace ourselves to live with the way things are. But God, instead of just bracing ourselves to live with the brokenness that exists, would you begin now to change our hearts and maybe inspire us to begin to believe that you can change everything? May we see that you take things that are busted and dead and bring them to life again. So begin by this power to breathe life uh, into each one of our hearts. Begin to breathe life into our, our marriages. Begin to re- breathe life into this group of people. We call ourselves a church. Begin to breathe life into our friendships. So that in the end, everything would be changed for the better. In the end, we would celebrate how good and merciful you are to us. God, if this is hard to believe, give us the inspiration, give us the faith to begin to consider that it might be true. Uh, Show us your will. If you need to confront us face-to-face on a road that we shouldn't be walking down like Saul, then, then do that. Make it happen. Because we need your mercy, and we need to come face to face with it. And it's only by that mercy that we're able to ask this powerful thing. We ask it in Jesus' name.